0: Proceedings Podcast. I'm Paul Kingsbury, retired fleet mass chief and co-director of outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute, coming to you from Studio Hampton Roads. We've got a couple great guests today. A great topic, but before I get to that, I want to cover down a great opportunity for you, and for those of you who may not have heard. So, through the end of June, as we navigate through the COVID nineteen crisis, we are offering free digital access through the end of June. And what that gets you is that gets you access to Proceedings Magazine, Naval History Magazine, and archive material as well. So that means you can access any article all the way back since we've been publishing Proceedings Magazine way in the late eighteen hundreds. And you'll see today that you can use content that's out there. A lot of great uh, content was written that has relevance for us today that we can bring forward and bring into modern discussions as we work to shape maybe culture, maybe readiness of uh, of naval issues today. Take advantage of that. The free digital access. We're also uh, with that also comes member pricing on books. So whether you're a member or not, you're going to get great discounts up to 40 percent off titles in our Naval Institute Press we got many great books across warfare areas. Uh, we got things like Blue Jackets Manual, Chief Petty Officer's Guide, Coast Guardsman's Manual, all kind of professional reading material. So you want, might want to get on our website and check out what Naval Institute Press has to offer and get the member discount that goes with that, as well as free shipping through the end of June. So some great opportunity over the next month or so. Take advantage of that. We've also got several essay contests that are active right now but are coming to a close. So 15 May is the deadline for the U.S. Coast Guard essay contest, and 31 May are the deadline for the CNO Naval History Contest as well as the Naval Mine Warfare essay contest. So once again, two more great opportunities to get those thoughts, make the naval profession better. Uh, I know you guys are seeing what's out there. I know you have great insights to offer. And heck, maybe even get a chance to win a little cash with it as you go. All right, let's get into the conversation. With me today, I've got uh, two great guests. So the first one is retired Mass Chief petty of the Coast Guard, Vince Patton. He was the eighth Mass Chief petty of the Coast Guard. He served from 1972 to 2002. And I've also got an old shipmate and pair of mine. We were uh, Fleet Mass Chiefs together for uh, a couple years. Uh, and we both retired within about a year of each other. So retired Fleet Mass Chief, Ray Kemp. Welcome, gentlemen. How are things going?
1: Hey, Paul. Uh, all is well. Great to see you. Great connect um, with the Mick Pog, my hero, Vince. <laughs> it's uh, very, very, uh, very glad to be here. Uh, glad to be part of this very important conversation.
2: Yeah, Paul, uh, same here. Uh, real great to be here and uh, happy to be working with Raymond
0: on this uh, wonderful program. All right. Absolutely. So what have you guys been up to? Uh, Vince, how's life as a retired Mashie Payos of the Coast Guard?
2: Well, I like to say, because uh, I'm coming into my 18th year of retirement, which is somewhat hard to believe, because I'm still actively engaged with doing things in the Coast Guard, so I, in some ways I feel like I never left. But for me, it's, it's, it's been very busy. Uh, uh, today, currently, uh, I'm Senior Vice President for Leadership Development for a mortgage company called New Day USA, which is uh, based in Washington, D.C. area. And I have my hands in a thousand other things Serve on the board for the building of the new National Coast Guard Museum. I'm on the board for Northeast Maritime Institute and involved with the uh, Naval Sea Cadet Corps program. Awesome.
0: Raymond, how have things been with you? They, uh, they, they've they been book bags down, feet up. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been uh, a great time uh, coming up on uh, nine months and... The, on the other side of the blue line, uh, as I moved into retirement, I, I began an LLC a solutions. And so I'm doing some leadership consulting and some speaking around the country. And I'm, I'm writing right now for a contributing writer for Vivid Magazine. My headquartered out of Pensacola, Florida, playing up my fair share of golf and growing out my beard is my new hobby. So it's been uh, it's been a good time, though. So it's, I, I highly recommend retirement.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we'll get you know, I applaud your writing. And that's great to see. We'll talk about that a little more towards the end, because I definitely want to pass on those experiences and personal barriers and things. But uh, as I mentioned, you know, I wanted to do this this topic a while ago. Uh, you know, February each February we celebrate African American uh, History and Heritage Month, and we had talked briefly about covering this topic, basically the African American experience in the Navy and and the Coast Guard. It's something I think we touch upon during the month of February, but I just sense there was a depth of conversation that we could get at, and there was some more learning that needs to come out of that. And frankly, I, I figured out. Or well, I've you know, not figured it out, but I thought maybe it's good to do this topic away from the month of February so it just doesn't tip the hat to it. It continues the conversation because I think it's very important. And once again, thank you guys. I know you guys have great experiences and great insights and a passion for this that we can get into. So I want to start basically with kind of just like we don't have time to do it. You know, We only have about an hour or so. But there's a huge history of the African-American experience in the Navy and the Coast Guard clearly it's longer in the navy Uh, so i wanted to cover down a little bit of that so as i was researching i went into the archives of the naval institute i searched african-american history Several books came up, several articles came up, but an article came up to me that kind of really had a lot of of content and really helped me. And and frankly, once I got done reading it, I kind of felt ashamed that I didn't know more about this and I should have known more. So it kind of hit me in the gut again that this is a topic that needs to be discussed. So it was an October 1979 article titled Integration of the Navy from 1941 to 1978. And it was written by Frederick S. Herod, who was then an associate professor at the uh, U.S. Naval Academy. And uh, I reached out to Tom Cutler, and I think uh, he's still at the Naval Academy as a professor. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to connect with him ahead of time. He would have been a great guest to bring on as well. To kind of save time, I'm going to go pre-World War II a bit here. I'm going to highlight a couple things. But out of that document, it talked about African Americans have been in the United States Navy since the early years of the Republic, uh, but their numbers had always been small. They served aboard aboard larger combatant vessels from the turn of the century through the First World War. And they served not only in just the Messman branch, but also held various skilled ratings as artificers. And then when the size of the Navy was curtailed in consequence of the disarmament movement following World War I, enlistment of African Americans seems to have been discontinued by Navy. In 1932, it goes on to say active recruiting of African Americans for the Messman branch began, and this was the only branch in which African Americans could enlist until recruiting for general service was open in June nineteen forty two. This article kind of picks up to that. So the, the period I really want to get at is let's get into that area um, right before World War II and into World War II and the experiences that are going on. So Ray, since you're our, our Navy guy and this is a piece of your history and heritage, what do you got to offer and give us a little history on what it's like to be an African American serving in the Navy at that time.
1: You know if we if we if we lean if we lean back just for a moment. So, uh, 1865 is when the Navy says that that we uh, began to integrate. Um, you know, before this time frame, we're getting ready to walk into, and that period uh, of slavery. And the first slave ship, by the way, uh, arrived in August of 1819. So that period of slavery. They've created quite an environment uh, for the, uh, the black Americans. I'm going to use the term black just because uh, I'm a bit contrary to the African-American popular you know language. So uh, not my intention to offend, but it's my
0: habit. So I think that's important so, uh, just to pause there because I came across as I'm reading. Right. So you got term black, you've got African-American Negro is mentioned. Right. So there is, you know, I don't know if there's a term that we use or that you favor or can we use them all?
1: Uh, Well, you know, they're they're all written. And one thing about the written word is it it allows a measure of flexibility uh, that culture doesn't necessarily uh, back up, if I may. So I I was born in the 60s, raised in the 70s in Oklahoma by uh, a line of family members that I can trace back to slavery. And therefore, our language when I was growing up uh, had a measure of flexibility, but the most honorable term uh, that seemed to be used, at least in my community, uh, was black. Therefore,
2: that's what I use. Okay. But the... Um, I'm going to cut you out just a little bit, Raymond, if you don't mind. Come on in. On this particular part is that, you know, I share the same thing. You know, we, we have uh, for years have had interchangeability, as Raymond pointed out. You know, like on my birth certificate in 1954, it says colored. So I grew up in that stage and then moved into Negro, moved into afro-american african-american right. black people those kinds of things so so like raymond uh i tend to uh prefer to stick to one side that being black uh because uh there's been often a, a big discussion about the term african-american and so forth so black is the term that i i'm mostly accustomed with but just wanted to throw that in as well
0: all right fair enough so sorry for the interruption ray back to you no that's good to go uh, because there's a
1: yeah, you know, words mean something, and to to use words that uh, are not offensive is uh, just a great way to communicate, especially in the uh, in the leadership position that all three of us have had the opportunity to. Uh, to serve in. So I, I appreciate the pause. Uh, and frankly, that's that's a very respectful thing that oftentimes um, people don't take the time to, uh, to do or to find out. But as I was saying, coming out of uh, slavery, you know, that group of people extremely, extremely oppressed uh, and into, you know, the early 1900s, um, it wasn't that it was around the same time frame that we were still feeling the effects of Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which validated uh, the Jim Crow laws, which basically was the uh, American court system, the Supreme Court, saying that it's okay to uh, have separate and unequal accommodations for uh, blacks at the time. And so when World War I began, there was a fairly high measure uh, of stress in the black community when it comes down to discrimination, um, both racially and socioeconomically certainly considered to be uh, inferior, as, you know, is uh, made very clear by the uh, Jim Crow laws. Uh, There were large social organizations, for example, the Ku Klux Klan uh, that was uh, lynching blacks at the time and, absolutely a high level of maltreatment. The interesting thing and I would say the honorable thing is that it was in world war, when World War I began, although all this stress was going on within the black community, it was like, okay, let's pause from all these all this discrimination and so forth. there's a war if they need our help, we're gonna go uh, fight and win. Then when we came back or then when the blacks came back from that world war, um, society had, had really not changed that much and, and therefore they came back into a very similar situation. And so in the 40s, making our way uh, or in the early uh, 1900s, rolling into the 40s, it was still hard to be a black man in America, much the same as it is now. Uh, and the experience, as they made their way through those times and the galvanizing of American patriotism because we were at war was something that created an environment where you know, blacks could come in, operate within the Navy, show their skill set, and then the next thing you know, um, sh- it, it, in what was termed to be a meritocracy, they were able to show that truly they were equal, even though there's still a high level of discrimination in people who didn't believe that who were on active duty at the time.
0: Yeah, so as I you know, as I read and I learned, right, so a couple of things stand out, right? It's the Black experience, frankly, in the Navy, for the first significant portion of it is an enlisted experience, too, because as we know, not only is it hard to be an enlisted man, but... Number one, there's no women at that point, and then definitely there's no officers, officers
1: serving. Hey, Paul, and you know, I, you know, we'll likely get back into it in a moment, but you know, the Golden Thirteen, you know, the the first group of uh, black officers that made their way through the Navy Naval Academy curriculum. By the way, maintained the highest GPA ever of a Naval Academy class, uh, along with uh, Admiral Gravely. You know, he came in the Navy during that time frame, and so but there was some absolute. Uh, heavy hitters uh, who, when offered the opportunity, were able to come in, contribute significantly to the Navy.
0: Okay. Um, so another theme that I see is like several secretaries in the Navy are championing, I think, for progress, but it always comes back to the as is, the as is. And as I went back, right, I'm kind of looking at periods and significant people. So one one that comes up, so let's get into 1941 timeframe frame. Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox, you know, establishes a committee to investigate black opportunities, SPAC, and it finds no corrective measures are necessary because the enlisted force was, you know, representative of U.S. citizens. That's what they say, right? And then we get into this area where here's a significant person that comes into play, Dory Miller. So talk about his significance in this uh, black experience.
1: Yeah, very frankly, uh, Paul, his his contributions during World War II were, were significant for the people that were there. I think we look back on history and we kind of allow ourselves to be seduced by, you know, what we think would be the right thing to do. And it just was not done. Though, yes, the significance of Dory Miller uh, has been made very, very clear. You know, now in 2020, we have the first aircraft carrier named for an enlisted person rather than a president or a significant congressional person being named for Dory Miller, you know, who happened to be Uh, black sailor who grabbed a hold of a machine gun and went to work just as every sailor uh, should in the event that there is conflict. But his significance at the time, there there was no fanfare and there was no, all of a sudden, oh, wow, they can do these things. Let's invite them into these other ratings and into The officers quarters just but it took years on top of years for those things to get recognized. And the regrettable thing is that he certainly earned a Congressional Medal of Honor, but he was given some podunk medal rather than that. So all respect due uh, to history. But the fact of the matter is that there was not a significant action that happened. And Beth, tell me if I'm wrong, but there no, not no, some... No, 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 you're right that on
2: track. And, that, and I'm glad you brought that up because in that story about Dory Miller, you know, there was a great opposition to even recognize him. You know, I, I mean, it took, it, it took nearly, uh, not quite an act of Congress, but really just an outrage from uh, outside of the navy to recognize for what he did because uh, and so it wasn't it wasn't the uh, the quick easy simple hey sailor you did a great job and you know let's recognize you that kind of thing on the contrary it was a a real big push to to just not recognize him in fact when they did recognize him they didn't mention his name they they did not even mention his name so the story of dory miller just knowing that story of dory miller as a whole It's really mind shattering at that period of time of up, given uh, heroic efforts that he had done.
0: Now, Vince, we had a a prior conversation uh, and you gave me some insights on the whole Messman rating and how that was structured. Can you uh, offer that to the audience, please?
2: Well, before I talk about the Coast Guard stuff, because for the most part, the Coast Guard uh, has been somewhat parallel with the Navy. There were some differences and so forth. I could talk about that later, later. but but uh, but more to your question, Paul, about uh, the messmen. When when the messmen uh, rating was created, you know, initially, you know, way prior to World War II, it really started off with really just uh, and, and providing jobs for Chinese. And other Asians, to, uh, uh, bringing them in, and it was their opportunity to to serve as as uh, as servants uh, for the officers' corps. And later, they brought in uh, uh, blacks into doing those particular roles. But here's the here's the big rub that I've had in uh, in doing my research on the story of steward rating, is that even up to World War II and, and a little bit after, a chief steward was junior to a third-class bosun mate. None of the stewards, uh, when they, when they reached what we now call E4 and above, the, the pay grades were a little different during World War II. None of the stewards that once they wore a rank that looked like a petty officer could be called petty officers. A, a steward third class, a steward second class, a steward first class, a chief steward, while they wore ranks that looked like a petty officer third, second, first, they could not be petty officers. Why? Because the point to that was positions of leadership, that they would never be in a position of leadership any other white uh, uh, petty officer. That, so, so that soon changed after, after World War II when Executive Order 9801 came into effect. But prior to that, uh, messmen slash stewards uh, were not equal in, in terms of uh, pay grade and rank as others.
1: Yes. Yeah, so yeah, the, the rating badges being different, that's just wow. It's yeah. just an interesting
0: thing. Yeah. yeah. So talk about this order. This is a pretty significant piece of this uh, story. So how this come about and what's the impact and and what's the significance?
2: Uh, executive Order uh, 9801, which was signed in, uh, in 1947 by President Truman, which uh, integrated the armed forces. Uh, and it was met with great opposition uh, throughout the services. some of the U.S. military's great heroes, such as uh, Curtis LeMay of the Air Force and so forth, was greatly against uh, the integration of, of the Armed Forces. It was really something that the, the person who was probably fundamental in the genesis of the creation of the integration of the for, of the Armed Forces, it really goes back to a lady by the name of Eleanor Roosevelt who pushed the idea. She went out to visit troop, troop uh, group and wanted to find out why are they not working with everybody else? And they said, well, this is just the way how it is. And she was appalled. And she jumped on her husband about it. And, of course, he died before anything happened. And whether he was really wanted to do anything about it, history has never really documented that. But it was was soon after when Truman became president that uh, he took on the cause. And he took on the cause uh, through the help of the NAACP. I, I think they were the ones that prodded this the most. Uh, the integration of the armed forces which which brought that on and that and that I think changed the whole landscape of, of the military from that that day forward because as Raymond and I talk about the history of our uh, respective services of blacks that have served in the past and so forth and saw how big of a difference that had occurred including you know uh, the number of officers that that were in the uh, uh, well, I think prior to World War II, I don't think there were any. If I'm not right. mistaken, but uh, you know, but but the but but seeing how that and moving forward uh, was was very 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 challenging. Uh, the U.S. Army uh, was was probably a little bit more forward than our sea services. Uh, you know, they had, because they uh, because prior to World War II, the U.S. Army already had black general and black colonels. Uh, but the U.S. Navy slash U.S. Coast Guard, uh, we didn't have any. We didn't have any officers you know, prior, to, prior to World War II. So
0: 1944, when I was going back, that's a pretty significant year. A lot of things, a lot of firsts happened in 1944. Experimental program to place all black crews with white officers on board this destroyer escort Mason. At this point, we've already moved back and allowed them to. Get beyond the Messman rating for other things. 1944 is the first time we've, or uh, we've had 12 black sailors that receive commissions. Um, 1944, October, 1944, the Navy announced that it would uh, accept black women into the waves and it adopted integrated training and assignment of women. And then in, uh, 1945, they accept Wesley A. Brown, right? So this is the, you know, he's accepted out of a group. But in 1949, he becomes the first black graduate of the Naval Academy. So a lot of great things are happening there. And then, like you say, Executive Order 9981 happens in 48. So progress is happening, right? And part of the reason I want to have this this discussion is progress is never guaranteed as i read through right you know you come into the 1950s and we start coming out of world war ii and you start to see some rollback happening what's your thoughts as we come out of world war ii what's happening there
1: well the um coming out of world war ii and it, the mason story de 529 just what a fabulous fabulous story uh, To uh, to today, you know, 2020 um, DDG 87 USS Mason is the only ship in our navy that's named after a crew, and it's 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 named for the crew of DD 529, that first all-black ship that was uh, commissioned in um, during during World War II and performed at a very high level, which is why you know uh, 87 is named after after that crew. Uh, just so happens, uh, 87 was my first tour, as a, first tour at sea as a CMC, so super-duper oh, proud cool. of the history and heritage and thankful for Mary Pat Kelly, who was the one who actually wrote the book that generated the interest uh, and made that move. C- coming back from uh, World War II, uh, the interesting thing for the Black community is that now uh, there's so many folks who had uh, served, had the opportunity to serve, and been Taken to the far reaches of the world. So the Far East, literally, uh, and certainly over to Europe. When,
2: I mean, w- without even going into the detail uh, of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, And
1: the black crews that went over to uh, give support to the ground forces there uh, in Europe, as well as the sailors uh, who were had their first opportunity to get to the Far East. I mean, it was uh, some exposure to the black community like never before. So people who did not uh, join the services and and stayed at home are hearing all these fabulous stories of these far off places, uh, whether, again, um, primarily Europe and uh, Japan. And so to come back and be able to, to weave those tails, but then still to not be able to get a job, uh, still get discriminated strict going on, particularly in the South. It was still difficult to get a good job that would pay a living wage for you so that you could provide for you and your family, uh, even uh, in the North and out West, which was considered to be one of the places where it was most likely you know, for someone to get a job, but it was still, of course, labor. So though, yes, uh, while you had the opportunity to serve, um, those things that were happening in society were still oppressive. Oh, by the way, they're still and uh, it's still a volunteer force and So you have those folks who are
2: part of the social organizations that believe in that high level of discrimination Joining the military. So now they're in the
1: service and they're still in those leadership rep- uh, roles uh, and Oppressing the blacks because even at that time every rating in the Navy wasn't open to black people uh, or to other minorities for that matter So uh, it was still you know, the, the meritocracy that we, we like to think about when it comes down to the Navy just was not there. Uh, and the directed oppression uh, towards Black people when it comes to earning opportunities uh, and learning those professions uh, was not, not available as well. So it was still an extremely, extremely tough time, and it re- remained that way for a, a
0: very long time. Yeah, so there's I mean, race riots yeah. on carriers and, you know, ships. That's, you right. know, in the 60s. And then, Vince, this is... This gets in the around the time where you're starting to come this kind of there's a lot of this is when the equal opportunity movement started. It's not just about opportunity. It's about equal opportunity. So Vince, you you enlist around this time. What's what's going on and what's your experience?
2: Well, uh, for, first, of all, I'm going to start back a little bit and, and uh, to give the Coast Guard side of, of our black history, which I think is important to uh, during World War Two. And uh, it, it was through the efforts of a, of a white officer, believe it or not, uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander uh, Carlton Skinner, who at the time was a lieutenant engineering officer on a Coast Guard cutter, and uh, he was shorthanded in the engine room. Just so happens that one of the stewards was was a master mechanic uh, before he went into the Coast Guard, and he was here he is a steward uh, uh, serving in the officers' mess. One day, the uh, Lieutenant Skinner sitting down talking with uh, his assistant engineering officer and a couple other people on a problem that they just couldn't figure out how to handle it in uh, in the engine room. And uh, the messman uh, by the name of uh, Oliver Henry spoke up and and told them how to fix whatever needed to be fixed. Skinner became uh, very impressed, and uh, he brought him down to the engine room, and he found that that uh, uh, Henry knew an awful, knew a lot more than anybody else. So uh, uh, Lieutenant Skinner went to the commanding officer and asked uh, if, if he could please have stewards mate, Oliver Henry, uh, come down to the engine room and work as a motor machinist mate. And the captain said, absolutely not. Uh, his job is, is up here in the, in the uh, ward room and is where he belongs. And uh, so what happened was uh, Lieutenant Skinner defied the captain and brought Henry down to the engine room to work. Wow. When the captain found out, uh, the captain was very mad and uh, wrote uh, uh, Skinner up. Skinner appealed it and he appealed it to the, uh, which was then the first, because the Coast Guard was under the Navy during World War II, to, to the first Naval District. And Skinner went before. A, uh, an admiral's mask, how things have worked out. And so, uh, he got off on it. Uh, so, but the punishment that came out of that to Skinner was Skinner was later made a, uh, a commanding officer of a uh, patrol boat and told Skinner that, okay, if you feel that, uh, that you can have colored people working, then we're going to give you a bunch of colored guys. And, mm-hmm. uh, so Skinner, Rogered up for that and made an made an integrated crew. And this was the Coast Guard Cutter Sea Cloud, which uh, which performed uh, uh, picket duty of uh, basically uh, uh, convoy escorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, and this was all during around the time when the Mason was was being commissioned at, at that time. So, looking at that go forward, the adversity of trying to create integration at that time and how it later built forward to that is that. I look at the time when I came the Coast Guard in 1972 now here is here is my story you know I'm a, I'm a young black kid in inner city Detroit Michigan who was going to go into the Navy and that's because my oldest brother uh, was in the Navy and wrote home told me all about the Navy loved it and I wanted to be like my brother and so from and, and we're eight years apart so from age 10 when he was 18 and went into the Navy up to age 17 when I became a senior in high school. That's all I wanted to do was go into the Navy. So on my 17th birthday, as I become a senior in high school, because this is all I talked about, my parents agreed to allow for me to go into the delayed enlistment program because as a senior mm-hmm. in high school, I could sign up, and then off, off into uh, uh, the Navy, I would go after high school. I was so excited. That because this is all I wanted to do was go into the Navy. My bedroom was plastered with Navy everything. And uh, so on my 17th birthday, uh, since it fell on a Sunday, the next day I was able to go down to the recruiting office. When I went to the recruiting office the next day, right after I got out of school, on downtown Detroit in the federal building where all the uh, military recruiters were, it's a very narrow hallway. And down at the end of the narrow hallway, I saw a second-class petty officer sitting at his desk uh, in in the blue Cracker Jack uniform on the telephone. I said, that's the Navy recruiter. And I make a beeline down to the office. He says, have a seat. I'll be right with you. So just before I sat down, I I looked up, saw pictures of ships on the wall. Navy ships are gray. These ships were white. And they said Coast Guard. I walked into the wrong recruiting office. This is the honest guy truth. I walked into the wrong recruiting office. So, so it wasn't about anything that got me into the Coast Guard, other than back then the Coast Guard uniform looked just like the Navy uniform, with the exception of the hats. So I was just mistaken by seeing a guy in a Navy uniform, and I thought I was going in the Navy. So, uh, so I'm too embarrassed to turn around and walk out of the office. So, uh, so what I do is I say, okay, well I'm gonna. Since I made eye contact with this Navy recruiter, this, this Coast Guard recruiter, I'm going to uh, talk to him a little bit and go find the Navy recruiter. So he's on the phone. He's talking to an applicant. I'm nervous. I can't sit down. I walk around. I start looking at all the pictures on the wall and everything. And then I got a little excited about it. So wow, you know, I didn't really know much about the Coast Guard. And then I got fixed to a, a unit commendation was hanging on the wall. One of the recruiters in that office served on a ship that was involved in one of the greatest rescues of the Coast Guard that took place in 1952, which was the, uh, the Pendleton and the Fort Mercer disasters, which, which was made into a movie called The Finest Hours that the Disney uh, folks put out. So I read the citation and, it, and I'll tell you, it read like a novel. And after I read it, I said, wow. And when I said, wow, the recruiter stopped his phone call, looked up at me and said, I guarantee you'll have one of those in your first four years in the Coast Guard. That's how I ended up in the Coast Guard. I just awesome. got <laughs> so, Wow. So for me, it was, you know, it was, you know, it was adventure. It was like it was what every red blooded American kid saw so, I mean, for the most part in going in the military now of course 72 we still had a, a draft we had vietnam going on and so forth and there were probably other uh, uh uh motivations for people to want to go into another service other than the army you know that, but 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 for me as a kid since this was all i talked about as was my brother who who wanted to go into the navy in fact he did very well he retired as a captain uh, you know this was what i wanted to do i wanted to go into coast Guard and i never looked at anything in terms of of uh recognizing that i was going into a branch of service that had uh, even fewer uh minority representation than any other service in fact as a matter of fact my uh, my father was was greatly concerned about me going into the coast guard he knew about the coast guard and he was concerned about me going into the coast guard because of the way he saw it was one, I was going into a service where there were very few Blacks. The other part was the fear that I would be stationed in places where there were no Blacks. And that's, and that's very possible in the Coast Guard. In fact, he pulled out a road atlas and he pointed to little towns in Oregon and Maine and uh, in, in Massachusetts and says, guess what? There's, there's not a Black face within miles in these places. You could be stationed here." And he tried to talk me out of it, and which I was about to not go. And if it wasn't for my mother, who told my dad and said you know things have got to change and if he wants to be part of that change we've got to support him rather than to tell him what he can't do because of the color of his skin so that that was what I you know at that time when I came to the Coast Guard and, and let me tell you it was uh, there were very far few in fact in, in the 70s uh, it was roughly 4 plus percent Blacks in the Coast Guard at the time, it, you know, it, this is no kidding that in the first six or seven years of my time in the Coast Guard, we all knew each other. You know, there was, the, I mean, there was, at the time in the Coast Guard, there was 36,000, 35,000 people, and and uh, and less than 1,000 or maybe 1,200 of them were Black. We all knew each other. We knew yeah. each other. Then. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of unheard of, but it's the truth, and uh, uh, so... So on one side you say, well, wow, you're going into something very elite and unique with a bunch of people, but on the other side, the challenges that we had to face as a result of that, particularly with uh, other people we were that we were stationed with that didn't like us to be with them, and then the same thing my father had was worried about the possibility of being assigned in locations uh, to where you were in, and I and I ran into that situation although I, I was not stationed in them. In a, in a pretty much all white area, but the first ship I was on, we went into those places, and I wasn't a very welcome soul. So, so the, it was a big challenge of things of what I had to deal with during my first years in the Coast Guard.
0: Got it. Hey Raymond, uh, let's talk about Admiral Zumwalt a bit. Good for the the black experience or not? Well, you know, anytime you you take someone with the vision
1: of I, we need to look beyond. Uh, just the color of our skin uh, and hold people accountable for not uh, allowing those opportunities to take place. I mean, he
0: he was an asset.
1: I mean, not beyond, you know, just the ombudsman um, posture, uh, but when it comes down to the black community, um, he used the right words. And and I I will fully uh, admit that from my perspective, it had to be difficult to be a colorblind white person at that time. and if if and or when you were that person that that was not a free ride. I mean just as uh, Vince was talking about before, um, the, the chain or the chief engineer on that particular ship you know who realized I needed the most the, the most talented and best qualified most fully qualified person to work on his gear practically got relieved and had to get you know kicked off the ship and banished is what they thought they were doing So however he was able to make it work. Uh, so to be the senior person, youngest CNO ever, uh, and then his you know new perspective on uh, how the, the services ought to be integrated during that time frame, uh, it was not an easy win, and there there were some necessary hard steps that the uh, black community had to go through. Uh, and thankfully, you know, you got CNO who is at least saying words and and writing you know the Zgram yeah. saying, "Hey, we're we're going to."
2: Um, allow
1: everyone access to these places, access to these professions, uh, and then hold people accountable for it. It was good, but it was hard.
0: Yep. Um, Specifically, ZGram 66, this is where he pledges open communication with minority personnel and also eliminate grievances such as discrimination and off-base housing. Once again, it has some effect, but not not the desired effect because, you know, we go into several, you know, basically race wa- riots on board carriers and then the Navy starts to take measures. Um, we establish human relations councils and other affirmative actions to redress black grievances. Really, that's where this article kind of leaves off, right? Frankly, the last kind of paragraph or two is is powerful to me, right? It says, today, confrontations over civil rights issues have again subsided. Without the pressure of immediate crises, racial policy has once again become more a matter that the service handles routinely, comparatively free from the public spotlight. This air of calm, however, does not mean that the question has been settled. Indeed, the problem has proved intractable for the Navy and the nation as both face a legacy of racism and discrimination. Mm-hmm. So that brings me to my next point about put in policies, equal opportunity you know, attempts. There's progress. we got equal opportunity measures. Um, The the footprint and percentage of of black sailors in the Coast Guard and the Navy starts to become a little more representative of the general population, probably not exactly what it needs to be. But the article kind of ends at that end of the the 1970s. But the last paragraph of that article, I think, is important. So it says, Today, confrontations over civil rights issues have again subsided. Without the pressure of immediate crises— Racial policy has once more become a matter that the service handles routinely, comparatively free from the public spotlight. This era of calm, however, does not mean that the question has been settled. Indeed, the problem has proved intractable for the Navy and the nation as both face a legacy of racism and discrimination. What's, you know, I, I think that's still true. I think we've made progress, but I believe there's probably, I think of many of the policies personally, You know, I think it's helped tamper down or manage some of the explicit racism, but there's still some implicit stuff out there, right? There's still values and belief systems that run counter to our core values of both services and what we believe in. And we're always, I think, at risk of rolling back. So what's your, uh, I'll start with Raymond, what's your assessment of what's good what do we need to watch and mitigate now and uh what's the challenges of today
1: well the uh first and foremost i'd say that the challenges are are absolutely yeah, still here today so nine months into re- retirement yeah, my official uh duties are I officially turned over and um, July time frame of last year uh, and then made my way back to the states and still went out and spoke at various different things took meetings with uh, a number of people uh, before I officially retired but I'll tell you right now there was not a day that I served where I wasn't undervalued underappreciated having to work twice as hard and getting half the credit as my peers not a single day even uh, though now it is absolutely not the same measure of discrimination that was felt in 1986 when I walked on board the USS Independence aircraft carrier out of Philadelphia. So uh, when I reported to uh, USS Independence and met my first uh, master chief, it was interesting uh, that in that meeting, um, he, he he began to use a word, just basically lather me up with this uh, word that is uh, so abrasive now that it's, it's just known as the N-word. And so uh, because I was born in the great nation of Texas, because I was raised in, a, in uh, Oklahoma, that word itself really meant nothing. And so, um, though he used it and he banished me off uh, to uh, what was known as S-8 Division, um, which was the Supply Department's Reha- Rehabilitation Division, uh, I went in there along with the rest of the black people that he had done that to. And My goal of joining the Navy was to make E-5 and then go back home and retire. Well, I went in there and immediately saw someone who was an E-5 and therefore I thought, wow, well, if he can do it, I can. And so, uh, it was a, a very, very challenging time. And as I mentioned before, you know, there's still, there were race riots going on, on aircraft carriers, uh, in Norfolk, uh, during that time that I was stationed in Philadelphia from, uh, 86 to 88. So, but uh, the, the challenges are still absolutely, uh, there. And I, I would say that though it is very, uh, covert, though, uh, when it comes down to in the enlisted force, when it comes to uh, selecting certain uh, people into uh, various different positions, um, that is, you know, very subjective. Uh, when it comes down to the individual and the process that we use, uh, but black people have been boxed out of that position for a while. Uh, Keith Gooseby a fantastic uh, leader in our navy from days gone by. Uh, viable candidate uh, for master chief of the navy was not selected. Uh, nor was Suze Whitman, nor was April Beldo, nor was this guy Ramy Kemp. Uh, I mean, there have been fully uh, and best qualified people that one person uh, was able to say, yeah, I don't feel comfortable or whatever the reason may be uh, and not select them into that position. So uh, I, I would say that we are far off uh, from fair and equitable uh, when it comes down to uh, the opportunities uh, across our Navy. Now, are we a long way from Chief Gunners made Turpin from days gone by. Sure. Yes, we are. are. Are we a long way from those other heroes that we mentioned from the golden 13 and Admiral gravely, the, the challenges that Admiral Howard had to endure, uh, when she first joined oh, sure. Yes, we are. Uh, however, we are uh, far off from what I would truly say is an equitable opportunity. Now equality, you know, we all have the same amount of time, same opportunities. Okay. Uh, But that's like people being in a race, some people with advantages and you hit this, you hit stop, everybody stops, and you start over and say, it's equal start time. You've got the same opportunity. No. Equitability would be evening things out. And so um, there are things that are happening in society uh, that are having a negative impact uh, on uh, those of us here in the Navy, uh, those people who serve uh, as well and those challenges we, we need to continue to have the conversation. And while we were off camera uh, Vince and I were talking about the distance between you know what would be right uh, and where we are right now and it's a struggle that is worth fighting uh, it's a fight certainly worth fighting and understanding uh, the distance that we have come doesn't make it any better for the young person who joins it right now uh, and wants the opportunity to be the best that they can. There's a a, a saying, you know, your your broken leg doesn't make my stub toe hurt any less. So uh, the what's in it for me, you know, as we talk to these uh, people who are serving right now, it's got to be, okay, here specifically is where you should focus your attention. And those who are in leadership,
0: those who are policy writers and influencers are the ones who need to look clear lenses and say, hey, you know, here's how we can do it. All right. And Vince, uh, so Coast Guard, obviously a smaller service. What are the challenges that uh, you see today?
2: Well, I, you know, I think about some of it as parallel to the Navy in terms of challenges that we see today. I, uh, for the most part, the success to fixing those challenges rests with mentorship. It rests with 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 people more working together and more collaboratively together, not just people of the same color and so forth, but getting everybody else involved. This is why I feel that uh, programs such as this, what you are promoting here in this program is that opportunity to remind people about the importance of diversity and how it works to be able to fix the problem of the lack of diversity, the lack of understanding of diversity. So the challenges today that our folks in the Coast Guard face, like I said, are are pretty much common across the board in all services as a whole. Uh, And and for me, as I look back and and look at the challenges that I had to face over over the years, there's no question about uh, my road to becoming Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard and becoming the first... Uh, black to achieve that uh, particular level, you know, was no easy task. And, and I mean, you know, first and foremost, imagine imagine yourself meeting a young black kid in boot camp. In boot camp, two weeks in the boot camp, I said I wanted to be Mass Chief of Coast Guard, and you uh, know, and I was serious. And why did I want to become Master Chief of Coast Guard? Is because when I saw the picture of the Mass Chief of Coast Guard when I came in, we only had one. It was because the, the position just started. Uh, that. I not only saw myself in it, but when but it was about someone who happened to be my my company commander told me I couldn't be in because mm. of the color of my skin. And yeah. that enraged me. And that enraged me so much. And even through the course of my time in the Coast Guard, when I talked about what I what my career aspirations were, it it, it compounded that people liked me for what I was and so forth, but you'll never become master chief payoffs of the Coast Guard. Well, why not? Why can't I have that opportunity? Right. Well, because yep. you know, some of you told me up front because of the color of my skin, or they, or they danced around it in terms of saying it differently. I mean, the same thing holds true today with with young people of color who are in the Coast Guard today that look up and see positions like Command Master Chief, Master Chief of the Coast Guard, to be Commandant of the Coast
0: Guard, and so forth. So. Vince, I'll throw to you, why is reading articles and books that cover this topic and having these conversations important? Um, And then for both of you, what are your final thoughts to offer?
2: Well, for me, you know, professional development is so, so important in in terms of of, of what anyone wants to do as far as developing themselves, both in their careers currently, as well as the future. Because one thing that's very important I've always found is that uh, if you're in uniform today, you're not going to be in uniform very, very long. You're going to go out and do other things. And that said, is that you've got to have an educational enrichment thought uh, throughout life, and this is where reading is so important. This is why you know my membership with the with the uh, Naval Institute, which has been well over 20 years 30 years, maybe I'm not sure. But uh, uh, my my involvement in Naval Institute has been because of of being able to read and. Understand uh, uh, what different things, uh, uh, different issues, different concerns, educate myself to understanding that. To, to have at least a better, to articulate so important. And again, I, I'll go back to you, Paul, and say I, I can't thank you enough for uh, having this topic uh, discussed in this particular forum. And as I had said to Raymond, uh, uh, earlier said, so, you know, this is kind of like the elephant in the room, that, you know, that we haven't had that opportunity to be able to address this particular issue and and talk about it freely as we're doing now.
0: All right, Raymond, what do you got?
2: Yeah, I, I would say that the, the reading,
1: and whether it be stories, poetry, articles, uh, is extremely important because it allows us to develop our intellectual agility.
0: Uh, and for
1: leaders, it is important that as we are in the service of combat arms uh, and those who are still on service to our, our nation right now, uh, it's extremely important for them to be able to look at a problem, uh, assess it with a high level of agility, and then move, and then move into a solution. Uh, for those of us who are still executing some measure of coaching or advising or mentorship to those on duty, it is our responsibility uh, with, the, uh, the oper- with the access you know, to speak freely in a different way uh, than w- while we were in our pr- respective offices uh, to let people know what are our lessons learned. And I think when you're able to get some solid reading in, uh, because the lifestyle of, of reading is, uh, and learning is certainly one that we should uh, cleave to, uh, but when you're executing that lifestyle of learning, Um, And reading those articles, it allows you to experience uh, some of the trials and tribulations and some of the victories uh, that others have seen without having to go through it yourself. So big proponent of reading. uh, When I was growing up, reading is fundamental as a program that we all uh, lean towards uh, so that we can be better. So uh, I I appreciate the opportunity that U.S. Naval Institute has provided us even in, in this conversation.
0: And then, Raymond, one last thing. You've been writing, you've been published... What's your words of encouragement about writing and how they use that forum to challenge existing value and belief systems or to change value and belief systems? What's your been experience with writing?
1: Uh, I'd say with writing, uh, for, very selfishly and personally, there's a, a measure of uh, liberation that goes into expressing thoughts uh, on paper. And, and you know, I've, I've stated, perhaps even overstated, you know, how long I've been on the planet, uh, but I love writing. Uh, with an ink pen and on paper. It is uh, a very uh, therapeutic uh, experience. It also has allowed me to generate conversation on topics like this that might perhaps be touchy. Uh, Very, very recently, I I wrote an article on frontline leadership um, as we were making our way into this uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And my question to a group of people I was talking to was, well, what have you talked to your frontline leaders about? Uh, Have you talked to them uh, what are your highest concerns? They talked about staying in and sheltering in place while, while we were still using that language, uh, but not one of them said that they talked to them about suicide. Uh, talked about the increase in child abuse. Talked about the increase in alcohol and other substance abuse. And I was like, hey, those are things that we need to you know create a, a conversation about. So I pinned that into an article, uh, and I've got tremendous feedback. Um, vivid Magazine is the, the organization I'm writing with, and. It created conversation. And so uh, what? no matter the topic, um, whether it is the topic du jour or whether it is just a pet project, when you write it down and and, and get it into a distributorship where people have the opportunity to read it, you're impacting hearts and minds. And so I highly encourage uh, trying it out. Uh, And whether it's through a journal that you begin um, or the fantastic opportunities with the essay contest that is sponsored by USNI, the only person holding you back from doing that is you, by the way, whoever that person is. Uh, I, I like to encourage people with a, a phrase that I use so often. See it feels like I made it up, but I didn't. Uh, those are 10 two-letter words. 10 two-letter words that will absolutely change your life as a leader and certainly as a man or a woman. And those words are, if it is to be, it is up to me. So go ahead and write and read.
0: Absolutely. All right. On that note, retired Master Chief Payless of the Coast Guard, Vince Patton, and retired Fleet Master Chief Raymond Kemp, thank you guys for joining me. Thanks for your insights, and thanks for daring to make a positive difference in our sea services. Uh, For the audience, once again, take advantage of the open access and check out the article I mentioned, right? It's the October 79 edition of Proceedings Magazine. The article was Integration of the Navy from 1941 to 1978 by Frederick S. Herod. Or check out, once again, what our Naval Institute press offers on this topic. There's a variety of topics You can just go ahead and search. For those members of the Naval Institute, thanks again for your support. For those who are not members, please consider joining. Your membership uh, not only gets you access to the forum and the magazines uh, and some member benefits, but it really helps support debate. It, incre- it facilitates discussions like the one we had today, which help increase the understanding of issues affecting the sea services. It can advance your career. It grows your network and you stay informed and connected. So until next time, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.